Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in a world of voices and, and uh, messages and controversies and decisions that you have graciously spoken, Proverbs tells us that at the head of many streets, wisdom cries out, come to me, O simple ones. And Lord, we are simple, though we find our lives vastly complicated. We are simple. We are people in need of you. And so please today, as we examine your word and the person and work of your son, bring us to wisdom, bring us to life, bring us to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, One of the privileges I have in ministry is getting to be the chaplain for the Grizzly football team. And one year, the football office offered me an on-field pass for the game. And I'm a huge football fan. I had never been on the sidelines of a collegiate uh, sport before. And so I was stoked to have this opportunity to go. Um, And yet, by nature, I'm also an anxious worry-riddled rule keeper. And so they gave me this pass, but they didn't tell me what to do with it. They didn't tell me where to go, but they said, here it is, enjoy it. And so I realized that I'm the kind of person who without much clarity, I have no idea what to do. I don't know where to go. And like when I go to an airport, I'm the guy who assumes that all of those TSA employees are there to keep me from getting where I'm going and I have to outwit them. And so my anxiety of being in the right place at the right time or getting called out was skyrocketing. And so what I ended up doing is there was a college student I was discipling at the time uh, who's on the football team. I said, hey, can, can I go with you? Like when you go, can I go in? And so he agreed. And so we walked in and all that week I had replayed thousands of times how I was gonna walk in. You know, I wanted to look confident but not too confident. Like I wanted my badge to be visible, but not so visible that they're like, that's definitely a fake badge. Someone should stop him. And so I had all this played up and we get there and I'm walking with this guy and we just walk in and that was it. No one stopped me. No one asked to see my pass. In fact, no one even really cared. Why? Because I was walking with someone who by nature belonged there. Things were immediately different because of who I walked with. And we're at a distinct point in Luke's gospel where we are learning what it's like to walk with Jesus by seeing the kind of people who Jesus is calling to himself. And in so doing, we see what it looks like to follow Jesus. And what we see in our passage today is that for those who follow Jesus, just like my life was with this collegiate football player, our lives, when we walk in lockstep with Jesus, look fundamentally different. When we follow Jesus, we'll encounter new sorts of trials and challenges. But what our passage shows us today is that those who walk with Jesus also reap the the benefit of new privileges, new benefits, new rewards. Being with Jesus doesn't mean that all of life's problems are solved immediately. That will come one day, but that day is not right now. But it does mean for those who follow Jesus, for those who are with Jesus, you walk with the one who not only brings new perspective, but brings new comfort and future certainty. And we're going to examine three distinct privileges of walking with Jesus in the passage Johnny just read for us. If you have your Bibles, you could open. We're going to be at the end of Luke chapter 5 and the beginning of Luke chapter 6. And this is the main idea we're going to see. One sentence, and we'll stop at each of the three privileges. We're going to see that following Jesus brings new celebration, new provision, and new restoration. If you're in here today and you're wondering what it looks like to follow Jesus, I hope what you see more than anything else is the surpassing goodness of walking with Jesus. This is the relationship that brings you everything you need in life. For those of you who do walk with Jesus, who have come and and confessed faith and belief, I hope that you continue to better understand, but also to take advantage of these privileges, which the disciples have merely because they are with Jesus. Last week, when Daniel preached, we saw that Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees because he didn't look like what the Pharisees expected God's Messiah to look like. 
And that's because if we fail to realize that our greatest problem is our sin, then Jesus and his gospel will always seem out of place at some way in our life. The cross will either seem like overkill or of something that's like that bad gift you get from the relative at Christmas. You're like, thanks for giving me this, but I have no use for this. If we don't see our problem as our sin, we will always see Jesus as foreign and strange and like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. But today, our passage picks up right after Jesus was criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners. But what Luke shows us is something that brings this point home for us. That it's not only Jesus who failed to meet the expectations of the religious elite. It was also his disciples, his followers, who failed to live up to expectations. Look at our opening verse today, the critique of the Pharisees in Luke 5:33. And the Pharisees said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So here the Pharisees notice something which, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope people notice about your life too. And that is that your life looks different than other people's lives. And the point of conflict was how the disciples acted. The disciples of the Pharisees, those are those who taught the Old Testament law, the disciple of John the Baptist, that is those who were predicting and waiting for God's coming Messiah, those two tribes all fasted. They didn't eat food for seasons and they were praying. But the disciples of Jesus are not just not fasting and praying, but their mouths are occupied eating and drinking. Now, is there anything wrong with praying and fasting? Hopefully, you would say no. In fact, it's something that in the New Testament we're encouraged to do at times. It's a privilege of our redemption. Is there anything wrong with eating and drinking? No, as long as we're not being gluttonous drunkards, which we never see to be the case with Jesus or with his disciples. So instead, what we begin to see here at the beginning of this passage is an important principle, which is this, that our proximity in our relationship to Jesus changes what we do and why we do it. That our relationship and our proximity to Jesus changes what we do and why we do it. Here, Jesus, for the first time, is in the flesh doing ministry, got fully God, fully man in his incarnation. It is changing things for the disciples. For you, we don't live in the same day and age as these disciples, but we now have encountered Jesus in the message of his salvation, and it would change things for you as well. And this is the first privilege we see of walking with Jesus, and this is new celebration, the privilege of new celebration. Consider Jesus' response to the Pharisees in verses 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus' first response is to talk about the party that comes with the bridegroom. In the culture of this day, people would fast before a wedding, and this was twofold. One, it was to bring back, uh, I don't think we need to fast to do this, but this significance of understanding the gravity, the joy, and the weight of a marriage ceremony. That this was a life-transforming covenant between two people to be entered into joyfully and reverently. So they prepared for that. They felt the weight of that. But then secondly, they also rested their bellies for a massive feast that was going to come at the wedding. And today you might go to a wedding and you'll finish the ceremony and the one who leads it says something like this. On behalf of the families, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today. I'd like to invite you back to our reception area where you can uh, meet people, talk to them, use the restroom if you need. We have some refreshments available for you until the wedding party comes. And that sounds really, really good, doesn't it? But we all know what that means, right? That means go stand with each other, smell the food, but don't you think about touching it. Don't eat anything yet. And then that wonderful moment comes after they just spent eight days taking pictures, the whole bridal party comes back in and we rejoice. Why? Because now we get to eat. It was fitting while the party wasn't there for people to wait. But it's equally as fitting when the party finally comes, when the bride and groom show up, that we celebrate and we celebrate by eating and by drinking and by making merry. It is a good thing. 
And this allegory is simple for us to understand because we've probably been to a wedding. And it was simple for the original hearers, but it was also scandalous. Because when Jesus began to talk about himself as the bridegroom, he was not just saying, it's like this. He was actually beginning to say, I am the bridegroom. That's how these Pharisees would have understood this statement. Because in the Old Testament, God has always spoken of his people as his bride. He was the groom. Israel was his beloved and cherished wife. But God's relationship to his people had been anything but celebration as of late. There was no joy, there was no gladness, there was no feasting, because Israel's relationship with their husband, God, was that of chasing after other gods, other idols, other lovers, other stand-in false husbands. And that's what sin always does, even in our own hearts. Sin leads us away from the one who our heart was made to rejoice in and brings us to superficial lovers. Lovers that seem to satisfy for a moment but aren't able to care for us. And that's why a category for your sin is not only something that's wrong, it's something that is fundamentally unfaithful. It is a violation of what we were made for. And while Israel was rebelling against God in the spiritual idolatry, God's plan to bring them back was to discipline them. And look at how the prophet Jeremiah spoke of this discipline in Jeremiah 16, verses 8 through 9. He said, You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. God would discipline them. He would chastise them by withdrawing his relationship from them, showing them all that their false husbands were unable to provide. And what was that experience like? God shutting down the celebration. God silencing the wedding feast. And this is exactly what happened to Israel. They were drawn into captivity. They ran from God, just as our hearts often do. And the authors of the Old Testament said that they looked on every rock, or under every rock, and on top of, un, uh, of every hill, and under every tree, for idols, for false saviors, for substitute husbands, and they couldn't find anything. And in the pace of all of this trying to find love that was lost, what it produced was not human flourishing in the face of freedom of affections, but it produced anxious worship. We'd maybe use something other than worship to describe the anxiety we feel in our lives, but maybe you've been there. Maybe you've run from relationship to relationship, career to career, social club to social club, Instagram post to Instagram post, hoping that you would find someone or something that loved you or treated you the way you think you need to be loved or treated. But if you've ever found that, we often face two strong emotions when we do. The first is we fear losing that source of love. We fear that maybe I'll change or they'll change and we become paranoid and worrisome, realizing that that which we find our greatest affection, acceptance, and identity in is woefully fragile. Or we realize what's more weighty is we actually experience love lost that we had found something that satisfied us, but either we failed to meet that standard ongoing or the thing we love changed and now we don't have that anymore. We are rejected, we are ruined, we have failed. And this is why the gospel and the gospel alone is exclusively good news. Because it's on the cross of Jesus where when we take and we put our faith and repentance in him, 
We are robed in everything Jesus did, which means if your greatest fear is, are you good enough, the cross is where you go. Because the answer is, you're not. But Jesus is infinitely perfect. And we take his unchanging perfection and we stand before God. And we know that despite our sin, for those who have faith, we stand worthy of God's love in Jesus Christ. But what of the God who has to affirm that love? Love is a two-way street, right? Well, if we stand in Jesus, it is impossible for God the Father to not love and accept the Son. He loves you with the eternal love with which he has loved the Son. Here is finally certainty. Here is finally joy. And we know that God desires to even draw sinners to himself in this sort of covenant love of assurance because the same God who silenced the wedding feast was the same God who promised to bring back the wedding feast. Look at Jeremiah 33. Skip a few chapters forward from where we just were. Verses 10 through 11. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, so this is after God has judged them, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as of first, says the Lord. God at some point was going to bring the groom back. At some point, the waiting and the lamenting would leave. It would flee as what? As the groom comes and people see that for which they were always longing. The prophet Isaiah, so different prophet, picked up on this exact same theme. Look at the emotions of this reunion in Isaiah 62, one through five. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you when the bride comes back to redeem a sinful people the result is joy it is a time to feast on the riches of what god has provided in christ though our sins silence the party christ in the flesh proves that god would not stay silent though our rebellious hearts ran away christ in the flesh proves that god would run forward in faithfulness though israel abandoned their vows christ in the flesh proved that they would be wed again by merit of the true israel and people would rejoice this is who jesus is claiming to be in this passage he is claiming to be the restoration of all the joy lost on account of sin Jesus was the faithfulness of God returning in the flesh to redeem his bride. And here we see the cause of celebration for the bridegroom had come. Now, if we're honest, do we view a life of following Jesus as a marriage or do we view it more as a mortgage? If you buy your house, you give up something. You give up a lot of money, a lot of money these days in hopes that what? That one day you pay off that debt and that thing becomes exclusively yours again, that you get to win it back. 
And how many of us come to Jesus because we realize it's probably better than homelessness? If on the outside of following Jesus is judgment and condemnation and God's justice, it's probably good to hedge my bets to come on the inside of that. But in the meantime, our life of following Jesus is nothing more than paying down debt in hopes that one day it gets better. But coming to Jesus is not a mortgage, it's a marriage. If you are one who is or has been married, you know that marriage is the giving up of a lot. Is it giving up of your singleness? Is it giving up of the exclusivity and autonomy of your finances, your time, your side of the bed, your health? We give up liberty in a sense, but it's the kind of liberty that is willingly swallowed up because of the joy of what is gained. It's a liberty which finds new life, new celebration, new fullness in the communion you have with the beloved. And this new celebration comes because Jesus is entirely new life. Jesus makes this clear in his following parables. Luke 5, 36 through 39. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will be burst and the skin in it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires the new for he says the old is good. So Jesus uses two parables here that might be foreign to us, but we could picture it to a degree. You can mend an old pair of jeans so I actually brought, I brought a pair of pants. Lillian, I have pants for you today that she is going to fix for me. And what I expect her to do is not to go to the store, to find an exact same pair of pants, to cut off of that existing pants, the spot that is ripped on mine, and then to sew that new patch on top of my old jeans. At that point, just take the new. That's the point Jesus is making. If you have a tear in a garment, no one breaks apart the new to match the old because it doesn't match with the old and now the new itself is ruined. And the Pharisees and the disciples of John were having a hard time reconciling how Jesus would fit into this old paradigm of the law. But Jesus is here saying that while that was old, it's going away. That I have not come to fit into the law, but I've come to fulfill it. He is something new altogether. And that's why he ends this parable. And if you're a wine person, you might hear what's said at the end here. And there's the guy saying the old is new. And you think of that French wine connoisseur who knows how to pronounce the words that wine are labeled with. And so the old is better. It's French. Um, but, and so we think that like at the end, he's saying the old is good. But this would have been total foolishness to that day. Because the new wine in this era was always the strongest, because when it got poured in, it had already been fermented. And so it was this new wine that was always the strongest, the most flavorful, and the most robust. In other words, it was only the arrogant fool who would be content with the old and not try the new. This is of great application for us today. It shows the privilege of coming to Jesus. Jesus is better than whatever life you've had. You might be one who sees the promise of Jesus and you're like, I bet I could take bits and pieces of that. I want to take a little bit of the love and I'm going to cut that out of who Jesus is and I'm going to slap that on my old. Or you might say, I've built up a pretty good life. This old wineskin has served me well. Let's figure out how we can retrofit this, get some of that Holy Spirit filling, Jesus loving inside of me and keep everything the same. But the newness of Jesus consumes the whole of your life and it is for the better. It is for your joy. In coming to Jesus, you come to someone who go, is going to make you entirely new. But the result is not brokenness, but fullness. The result is not a mismatched eclectic life hoping to, hoping to pass by as a new pair of trousers. Instead, it's realizing that we were made to find our fullness in Jesus. Even for us, we live on the second part of this verse where Jesus has been taken up. 
There are seasons of praying and seasons of fasting, but even now we are not without the comfort of the bridegroom. God has poured out on us through the Son, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself who declares to us Jesus' unending love for us, who reminds us of the joy we have in our redemption and causes us to yearn for that day when we no longer are separated but are restored and reunited when the bride comes back again. Like any long-distance relationship, there are seasons of deep joy, but there are also seasons of homesickness and seeming loss. In fact, we know that even for the disciples, the celebration, even when they were with Jesus, was not always feasting. And we see this immediately in the story which follows, and in the midst of where there was no bountiful feast, they were met by Jesus' perfect provision. And this is what we see as our second privilege. We see new provision when we walk with Jesus. Look with me at Luke 6, verses 1 through 2. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So here, they've left the banquet halls of Matthew, the tax collector, and now they're out away from everything. They find themselves in a field and they're hungry. But even as what they walked into did not look like the banquet hall they always expected, so long as they walked with Jesus, they found just enough to keep going. They found exactly what they needed in that moment. What was that just enough? Well, it was reaching down and grabbing some heads of grain and rubbing it in their hands and throwing the grain back, this wonderful first century sunflower seed eating. And this wasn't theft. In fact, God's Old Testament law allowed for travelers and sojourners to do just this. Isn't that, like, how great is God that he would prescribe this? Be like, you're on the road and you're hungry? This is great. If you've got a field, this is how you can serve those who are around you. And so they didn't break the law by doing this, but just as we saw in the previous passage, the Pharisees took note of how Jesus' followers were acting. It doesn't say that Jesus ate this way. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but Luke withholds that from us. Instead, it is the disciples themselves who the Pharisees target their attacks because they are doing what is, quote, not lawful to do on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, the last day of the week. And in the law, that's what God gave to Moses on Sinai, there were laws dictating how you were to act on the Sabbath. And it was based off of the creation week. God worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh. It's not because God was tired. Our God is all powerful. He does not tire. It tires you to make lunch. It does not tire God to breathe the cosmos into existence. He rested in order to enjoy it and in order to set a pattern for those who need rest themselves. And so this Sabbath was a day of rest. It was to be set apart and different according to the law. And how are people to keep the Sabbath? What would you say? If you've been around the church, what do you think goes into keeping the Sabbath? I thought it was interesting. I went and I looked this week. There are three explicit commands in scripture of how one is to keep the Sabbath. They are A, to not work on the Sabbath. They are B, to not kindle or start a fire on the Sabbath. That's Exodus 35. And they are C, we see in Jeremiah 17, 22, not to carry a burden on the Sabbath. So what do we not do on the Sabbath? We don't work, we don't kindle a fire, we don't carry a burden. Now imagine if your boss came to you one day and he said, here's the deal. You've worked hard this week. You've done really well. I know we got a lot of things left to do, but I want you to go home tomorrow and I want you to worry about any of it. Do nothing related to your job. Don't send that email. Don't think about that meeting. I know you've got that conflict still going on with Susan from HR, but just stop thinking about that for a little bit. In fact, if you find anything burdensome, stop doing it. All of that'll be there when you get back. And until you get back, I've got it handled. I'll take care of everything. We would, you know, go to KPAX and say, I've got an employer of the week here. <laughs> this guy is so incredibly generous. He's taking care of all of this so that I might just be able to rest. But at some point, those very laws that were given to God's people by God himself that were meant to remove burdens 
actually became burdensome. Isn't that, does that show how broken and twisted our hearts are? Where if our boss came to us and gave us that wonderful good news, we would find a way to make that wearisome for ourselves. We would somehow walk away and disparage the boss who tried to help us and to bless us. We take good things given by grace and we make them into grueling things driven by work. And that's why we must always seek to assess our lives in light of the gospel. Over the centuries, what happened is these Jews took those three explicit commands and they added to those three thousands of laws. Laws which were meant to protect. So you couldn't even get close to breaking these laws. And listen to some of these. You could not braid hair because that was considered weaving and that was laborious. You couldn't, I, I don't, in our modern world, this is probably something you shouldn't do. So even though this doesn't apply, I'd like to say, please don't do this, okay? Uh, you couldn't bathe openly outside, okay? So right now, good rule for all of us to apply, okay? In that day, a little more common. And you couldn't do that because whilst, whilst bathing, wow, while bathing, the water that you're washing with could be watering your lawn, which is farming, and you cannot farm on the Sabbath. There is a real debate still inside of some Jewish communities of if you're allowed to use a light switch on the Sabbath, because isn't the light switch just a modern kindling of the fire? Johnny told me this week that uh, in New York, some Jews invite their Gentile friends over to turn their light switches on for them. <laughs> on the Sabbath. And it's these kind of artificial rules to the nth degree that are why the Pharisees are attacking the disciples. It should be noted that they were not breaking the law. What I don't want any of us to see is that if we are following Jesus, we could break the law as we see fit and Jesus will say that's okay. That is not true. Jesus does not need you to break the law. He does not need you to sin in order for you to be happy. But instead, the disciples saw what, or the Pharisees saw what was permissible, that they were plucking heads, and that became harvesting. And then they rubbed it in their hands, and that became threshing. And that is why they condemned the disciples. And this is why Jesus' response is so fantastic. Isn't that so cool? Here we see Jesus speaking in defense of his disciples. Man, as Christians, don't we need to know that? <laughs> that there will be times, First John tells us, that our own heart condemns us. There'll be times where Satan, the deceiver, tries to remind us of all of our failings, of all the places we won't ever get what we want and how you're never worthy of this. And here Jesus speaks in defense, not only of his disciples, but almost to his disciples. So they might know they're right where they need to be. And this is what Jesus says in verses three through five. Jesus answered them, have you not read, which would have been extremely insulting to those who spend their lives reading like the Pharisees, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, and how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here's this bombshell that Jesus drops, that he is the son of man, which we saw last week, and that this son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Why does he do this? He does this to show who he is. He is the Lord, God's Messiah, God in the flesh. But he also does this to show what the Sabbath is ultimately about. The Sabbath has always been about God's provision, not man's contribution. In order to express this point, he doesn't actually turn to any Sabbath law, particularly in the Old Testament. He turns to a completely unrelated story of David's provision for those who were with him which is important because it is those who were with Jesus who are being attacked in this instance. He shares a story from 1 Samuel 21 where King David and his followers are on the run from Saul. David, the king of kings, the one who the Pharisees would have loved to uh, hitch their wagon to. And David runs <clears throat> to the priest at Nob and he asks if the priest has any food. And the priest says, all I have is the bread of the presence. What the bread of the presence was is uh, the priests would make these 12 loaves and they'd set those loaves on a table before the presence of God in the tabernacle or in the temple. And on the Sabbath day, the priests would come in and they would replace those bread with new bread. 
And that old bread would then go to the priests as their provision. It's how they would receive their food. Because the priests of that day, they weren't to farm. They weren't to engage in ranching. All of their provision came from what was offered to God. And so it was not permissible for that to be given to anyone except for the priest. But Ahimelech took that bread and gave it to David. and says, David gave it to those who were with him. And here Jesus' point is this. He says, if David was able to provide for his men without being reprimanded, then if I am Lord of the Sabbath, if I am the creator God who established the day of rest in the first place, am I not also to provide for those who are with me? Am I not reliable for those who find themselves hungry and in need? When Jesus said he was Lord of the Sabbath, he was proving his authority over the whole of creation, but he was also proving that he was the rest. He was the relief. He was the provision that the Sabbath was always meant to point to. The Sabbath was put in place not to remember lack, but to remember what they had. So God's people would always remember God's kind provision to them. Look at how in the second giving of the law, Moses says this when he introduces the Sabbath commands in verses chapter five, verses 14 through 15. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or the Gentile you invite into your home to turn on your light switch or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is, within, who is within your gates that all your male servants and your female servants may rest as well as you. Why? There's an implied why in verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, in other words, on account of God's provision to those who had nothing, therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. More than this, in the first giving of the law, in the book of Exodus, Moses begins the 10 commandments and he doesn't begin with the verb, don't work. Instead, he begins with the verb, remember. Remember what your God did. Remember how your God cares for you. Remember when you were a slave. Remember when you had no rights. Remember when you had no economic standing. Remember when you had no provision. Remember when I provided. In fact, the first time the word Sabbath shows up in the Old Testament, it happens after God has brought Israel out of Egypt but before God has given the law, which again shows us that the Sabbath is not meant to be seen as part of God's law. It's meant to be seen as part of God's special grace to his people. And God had brought Israel out of Egypt and they were grumbling because they were hungry. How many of us view walking with Jesus this same way? I think it's my default and perhaps it's yours when I encounter any commands of God to see those commands as something other than God's kind provision to us. We see them as threats. We see them as obstacles we need to overcome in order to get what we really want. And here the people who have just been delivered, who are being called to trust in God, are distrusting God. Where's our food? And so God graciously condescends and he says, I'm gonna give you manna. And they were to gather just enough for that day. They weren't to gather any leftovers, just for that day. If they gathered leftovers they would wake up in the morning and that manna would be rotten and gross and there'd be maggots and their house would be unclean. Why? Because God wanted to show them that he was the provider. You can trust me. You can go to bed at night and know I will give you what you need in the morning. But then on the sixth day, God said something different. Look at what he said in Exodus 16, verses 23 through 27. He said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath. Right here, first instance in the whole Bible to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over, lay aside and keep it till the morning. Remember, this was the bread that was rotting if they kept it overnight, the rest of the week. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. 
And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And some, that is those who did not take God at his word, on the seventh day, some people went out to gather, but they found none. The Sabbath existed to give anxious and overworked people a chance to look up and remember in God's covenantal love that he always was the one who provided. The reason the law was given, if you remember, we see this in Exodus, is so that a holy God can dwell with an unholy people. It made that union possible. And here is something you should learn about God. He doesn't need food. When those loaves of the presence were laid out before God, it wasn't for God. It was for us. It was symbolizing that God so desired to have us in his presence and in his presence we are full. And here is the Lord of the Sabbath, the presence of God. And when we are brought to Jesus, we can say nothing about our lack for we have exactly what we were always made for. To be with the presence of God is to be provided for perfectly. Jesus is the rest from our work, the rest from our labor, so that we might look and see that on the cross, Jesus has met every single one of our needs and that he is sufficient for us. Now, it is true that Jesus fulfills the law. We're no longer bound to the Sabbath law, but there is a way in which all of us are bound to the Sabbath reality, which is this. You probably shouldn't work seven days a week. It will kill you. God made limits to us. It means that there should be something distinct where you remember that it is God who provides. So what might that look like for for us? It might look like some of us realizing that you can step away from work for a week. Dads, I'm talking to myself here. There is a day where you don't need to check your email. That part of you not doing that is understanding that you are not the one who makes economics, business, or relationships thrive, but God is that he is the one who runs this world. He has intentionally limited you. You are not like Russell Wilson, Mr. Unlimited. You are limited. And that purpose is so that you might see the one who is unlimited. That might look like perhaps finding a day where your passions are distinct. There are so many good things in life that bring us joy. But how might you schedule your calendar so there's one day where you're reminded that there's a distinct joy we take in submitting ourselves to God. We see Jesus after this. It's him taking a break in the Sabbath that leads to mercy and to generosity. Might we take breaks to realize this is a day where I can enjoy being merciful, being generous, being present. This might seem like more legalism that we have to stop doing what we want and be distinct, but this distinction was not only a witness to our world who is so consumed with working our way into satisfaction and white knuckling the satisfaction that's in this world that we could finally let go of that and say, none of these things satisfy. None of these things redeem. But this last story shows us that it's actually in coming to Jesus that everything we want is finally and fully restored. Here's our final point this morning. The privilege of new restoration in walking with Jesus. Luke 6, 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to, enjoy, or, or to destroy it. And after looking around at the mall, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So here we see right after this, another Sabbath conflict. And as Jesus is teaching, trying to help people, what are the Pharisees doing? They're plotting in their hearts how to accuse Jesus And notice the contrast between the leaders of the world and the savior of the world in this text. The leaders of the world see a man who is wounded, see a man who has a withered hand, and they only encounter in that person a point 
to be made. But when our creator God sees him, he sees him not as a talking point, but as someone who needed healing. If there's anything we should see in our social media world today, it's this. That we don't encounter talking points when we encounter political realities or points of discussion. We encounter real wounds of real people who need the real gospel. And the truth is, your killer meme that worked great when you put it on Facebook (laughs) is not nearly as powerful as redemption that Jesus wants to bring in the gospel. And here we see the unique nature of Jesus' Sabbath rest. It is far better than anything the world can provide. Our world will fight and argue and provide all sorts of regulations that seem to lead us into human flourishing, but it's here in the presence of God that we flourish. It's here where we need to be. You see, the best labors of the world will try and make you feel like you're able to rest even though the world is still broken. It comes to you and says, but are you satisfied? Are you good? Then close your eyes and ignore all of the brokenness around you. As long as you're good, it's fine. But here's the beauty and the comprehensive nature of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, who has come to heal. And that is that Jesus' rest, Jesus' true rest, the rest which is held out for all of humanity, if they were to come to him, is not a rest by ignoring what is broken, but a rest that heals it. Because that's what God has come to do. The Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath was so distorted that it didn't even make room for mercy. But Jesus here shows the true substance of the Sabbath, a total restoration. And it's not a breaking of the Sabbath for Jesus to heal this man. It's actually a fulfillment of it. The rest Jesus calls us into is a rest of restoration. It is healing at the hand of the Savior who takes withered souls and says to them, stretch out your hand. You see, the cycle of Sabbath was so foundational that God actually broke up years into Sabbaths. And every seventh year, the Israelites were to not farm their land. The sixth year, they gathered more. And the seventh year, the land was supposed to rest. How would you do with that? Don't you guys notice this unique tension we have in our lives? Where all we want to do is nothing. All we want to do is rest. And yet all we fear is doing nothing. And all we want to do is work. It might not be work at what we're paid to do. But the idea that we could stop and find provision in something else is terrifying. We are by nature kings of our own kingdoms, unable to find true rest. What if I told you, don't work for a year? Don't work for a year and God will provide. Trust him. We would doubt that. We would find ways to side gig. We would go maybe hire someone who's not a Christian, say, yeah, 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 oh, I'm not going to work, but he's going to do it and I'll have a little bit from his table. We would get our food. But look at how God spoke of the Sabbath year in regards to the land. Look at verse 25, or chapter 25 of Leviticus, verses three through five. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. God's rest is so profound. The provision of God's presence is so transformative, so intimate that he actually cares for the experience of the dirt. Isn't that amazing? What God, what boss, what lover can you encounter in life who cares as deep as this? When God sent Israel into captivity, he described that as a Sabbath rest for the land. He uses a profound language where he says this. He says, Israel will not come back until the land has enjoyed its Sabbath. 
when the land has been refreshed, when the land has joy returned to it by having the sinful people removed, then you can have the opportunity to come back. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord of the Sabbath, if the presence of God himself is so profound, it restores land, how much more might that benefit be to us who are sinful man? This is restoration where Jesus gets to speak to a man who for the whole of his life was unable to spread his hand. You know how to really frustrate someone with a withered hand? Tell them to stretch it out. Well, if I, yeah, I didn't think about that. If my hand's like this and I wanted to do that, I just open my hand. Do you think he tried that? But here at the word of God in the flesh, Jesus says, stretch out your hand and he does it. He believed in faith what Jesus told him to do and he was restored. Here on the Sabbath, when the Lord spoke, the impossible happened. And when we are called by faith to respond to Jesus, our shriveled souls do the impossible. Our idolatrous hearts do what they could never do on their own. They attach themselves to the presence of God in Jesus who makes all things new. You see, Jesus is something new in this text and he would be something new in your life as well. But he's the something new, like when we discover a new archeological discovery. He's new not because he was just invented, he's new because we just discovered what was lost. Because in this story, we do see a glimpse into what will be for all who hope in Jesus Christ. But we also see a glimpse into what was in the Garden of Eden where men were in the direct presence of God and all of their needs were met. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It comes and receives the privilege of rejoicing that we have been found by the groom though we in our sin were lost. It looks at the privilege of God's provision that says, one day I get a feast, but today I get just enough. It looks at everything that was restored and it might look at your failing body and your broken mind, but it might say, but because I worship the Lord, I know that one day all things will be restored. This, this is what you were made for. This is what Jesus calls you to enjoy today in a life of faith to be treasured and distinct. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray you give us eyes to see who you are. And that as we see that more clearly, our celebration, our anxieties, and our restoration are put in proper perspective. Lord, we thank you that you have taken what is yours and you have shared it with those who are with you. Lord, we pray as we begin to take the Lord's Supper that we are reminded of the joy that comes when the groom returns. May our lives be distinct from the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John and the disciples of our world because we walk in the presence of the Lord of the Sabbath. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.